0: Hello, everyone, and happy But Did They Do It Tuesday. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and I hope you guys all had a great Fourth of July weekend with your friends or family or whoever you chose to celebrate with. Um, And yeah, I don't really think I have anything to really update on. I mean, it's summer. Nothing that crazy is going on. Anyways, so today our story takes place in Valley Center, California, So Valley Center, California, is located in the northern part of San Diego County. The population as of 2010 was 9,277. So just to kind of give you, well, 2010 is not that recent, but a a semi-recent time. Anyways, and at the time of our story in the year 2000, uh, the population was 1,323. So not a huge city. So when an older man went missing, it rocked the small town of Valley Center, California. Jane and Robert Dorotic met in Southern California in the late 1960s. At the time, Jane was working as a nurse in the pediatric department at the UCLA hospital. In 1970, Jane and Robert were married and started having children. They had one daughter named Claire and two sons, Alex and Nicholas. So Jane and Robert were married for 30 years and they lived on a ranch where Jane and their daughter Claire uh, could have horses. And by all accounts, they had a perfect home life. So in February of 2000, Jane and Robert were renting an 18 acre horse farm where Jane and Claire boarded and trained horses. Robert was trying to start up a business by constructing horse jumps from plastic pipe and Jane was a high ranking executive at a mental health services company. On the evening of Sunday, February 13th, 2000, Jane Dorotic called the local police and filed a missing persons report for her husband, Robert. She said that he had gone out for a jog around 1 p.m. that day but never returned home. Unlike in some stories we hear where loved ones are told to wait like 24 or 48 hours before reporting their adult family member missing, The San Diego County Sheriff's Office actually dispatched the search and rescue team almost immediately. Police obtained a piece of clothing from the Doradix home so that the search dogs could know Robert's scent. A tracking dog followed that scent, which led them to find Robert's jacket on the side of North Wolford Lake Road, which was along one of Robert's usual jogging trails. So, the next day, uh, which was actually Valentine's Day, which is really sad, actually, shortly before 5 a.m., Robert's body was found. So, this is all going super fast. He was reported on the evening of Sunday, February 13th, literally early, early the next morning, they already found his body. So, it was found in a heavily wooded area that was less than a half mile from where his jacket had been found. And at first glance, uh, the investigators that who were first on the scene said that they could tell that his skull had been fractured in several places and that he had been strangled because the rope was still wrapped around his neck and there were ligature marks on his neck. So numerous amounts of people, including investigators, cops, and criminalists with the San Diego Sheriff's Crime Lab, had been in and out of the house from the moment he was reported missing on the 13th until the day after he was found on the 15th. And they even thoroughly searched through the barns and the property. As part of the searches that were happening throughout the large property, a crime lab analyst named Carolyn Gannett walked into the master bedroom wearing only socks. Now, I don't know why that's such an important detail, I just found that kind of weird in the source that I found that on. It said that she walked in only wearing socks. And I just thought that was weird. I'm like, is that really a big deal? Should she have been wearing shoes? Like, I don't know. I don't know why that was such an important detail. Why that was such an important detail. But I figured I'd include it in there just because why not? And this Carolyn lady said that she found a area of the carpet that was near tile that was wet and she said that she also spotted red stains and she immediately called the detective after further investigation into this finding they found what they believed to be many more blood stains so they obtained a search warrant which this part doesn't really make sense to me because they've been searching the house and the property this entire time so, obviously, for them to have been searching all this time, they either had to have a previous warrant or Jane is just kind of letting them search the property. So, why they obtained a search warrant at this time, I'm not exactly sure, but they did anyways. Okay, so after the search warrant was obtained, a man named Charles Merritt, who claimed he was an expert in bloodstain pattern analysis claimed that he had identified numerous bloodstains located on the ceiling, a nightstand, a lampshade on the nightstand, some magazines that were also on the nightstand, a picture frame, a pillow sham, the comforter on the bed, and under the wet spot on the carpet. So bloodstains are found lots and lots of different places. That's a lot. So they sprayed those areas with fluorescein, so, fluorescein is a chemical that reacts under a blue light to a bunch of different things, including blood. So, swabs were also taken from those areas and sent away for testing. Blood stains were also said to be found on the headboard, the bottom of the mattress, the ceiling of the storage room, which was located directly underneath the master bedroom, and on the wall at the bottom of the staircase that led to the main door of the house, and in the bedroom of their daughter, Claire. So, this just seems to be an awful lot of blood in lots of random places in the house. And it kind of confuses me because they've said that they've been searching the house several times, right? They came in to get the shirt for the scent and all of that. So, wouldn't you have found those earlier? Um, Especially if you were in the house right after. I mean, I guess whoever did it could have had taken time to clean it all up. But still, you think that that would be done, like, immediately. And they also found a bloody towel, which is also really weird. Why didn't you find that earlier? So Jane and Robert's two sons, Alex, who was 26 at the time, and Nicholas, who was 22 at the time, arrived on the 15th, and they began to make plans for a funeral service. So the family told investigators that two of their family dogs had been bleeding from a claw injury and the other from an abscess on their snout. And that Robert had recently had a bad bloody nose in the master. So they believed that this kind of explained these random blood stains, but there's blood stains everywhere, apparently. Like, you get a bloody nose, it doesn't get on your lamp shade and on the bottom of your mattress. So, so the Ford F 250 truck that Jane used to pull her horse trailers and haul hay was also examined. Carolyn Gannett told the lead detective that she was confident that the tires on the truck matched the tire trucks found next to Robert's body, where his body was found. So on February seventeenth, 2000, just four days after Jane reported her husband missing, she was arrested for the murder of her husband. So investigators believed that Jane had essentially beat Robert to death in their bedroom, and then after he was dead, dressed him in his jogging clothes and dragged him down the stairs and out to the garage where she put his body in the back of the truck and then dumped his body in the woods. So, no, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. If you look at pictures of Jane, she is not that big of a lady. Like, I don't think, and you see this a lot. Like, I feel like I hear this in a bunch of different stories. It's like, it, it's he- people are heavy. Especially when it's just, like, all dead weight. So, she wasn't a very big lady. So, how she would have beat him to death, dressed, took the clothes he was wearing off, dressed him in his jogging clothes while he's dead, and then dragging him down the stairs out to the garage and throwing his body in the back of the truck, that just seems like a lot for a little lady. And she's, like, 50, mid-50s at this point. So, it's not like she's super, like, physically fit and young. So, all of that seems kind of weird to me. So, in May of 2001, Jane's trial began in the San Diego County Superior Court. On May 17th, the prosecutor gave her opening statement to the jury. She said that the murder was just a final act in a long-brewing dispute between the couple over money. No surprise there. I feel like that's the motive for literally everything. So, Robert was apparently unhappy with the amount Jane was spending on the horses even though she did make more money than him. So Robert even filed for divorce in 1997, and they briefly separated. Um, The prosecutor said that because Jane made more money than Robert, she would have to pay him alimony. So they're saying this is another, uh, like, strenuous part in their marriage but in 1998, they got back together and agreed to keep their finances separate. They had both taken out $250,000 life insurance policies on each other at this point. So she also told the jury of all the locations where blood had been found in the house. She also briefly mentioned that a syringe with traces of acepromazine, which is an animal tranquilizer drug to kind of like Um, sedate animals had been found in the bathroom garbage. She even said that Jane's fingerprints had been found in Robert's blood on the tranquilizer. Even though the prosecution is alluding to the fact that Robert might have been drugged, the drug was never found in his body and there is no evidence of a pinprick of a syringe found on his body during the autopsy. So I don't know why. I don't know. That's just kind of random. So they also said that the type of rope that was found around Robert's neck was the same as the rope found at the house as well. And as it turns out, the tires from her truck did match the tracks found where the body was dumped. So it's obvious that the prosecution has lots of evidence, right? And I want to say that it's completely circumstantial. I would say it's mostly solid at this point. And I feel like if I were A member of that jury I could even be convinced that she did do it but just wait wait until you hear what her lawyers have to say this kind of blew me away I this makes me kind of sad this is kind of messed up anyways so Jane was represented by Carrie Stegerwalt so Jane's defense claimed that hey Jane she doesn't deny that she did she did try to clean up the crime scene she did do that But she wasn't actually the person who killed Robert. She was just trying to protect her daughter, Claire, who actually killed Robert. Now, that is a pretty bold accusation to accuse your daughter, your own daughter, of murder. And I feel like that's pretty crappy. Like, if my mom was like, no, my daughter did it. I'm like, really? I'm like, I'd be like, well, I didn't do it. So I don't know why you're saying that. You're just trying to, like, kind of you're just trying to protect yourself, you're not really looking out for me, I would be really mad. So Claire Dorotic invoked her Fifth Amendment right at the pretrial hearing, so she did not give her side of the story at trial, and so we might never know what her side of the story is. But Jane didn't testify in her defense either. The Dorotic's sons, however, did testify, but they did not testify in favor of their mother. They testified against her. So according to Detective Rick Empson, Jane was very startled by the fact that her sons testified for the prosecution. On June 5th, both sides made their closing arguments and then the case went to the jury who meticulously went over the evidence. After a week, the jury came to a unanimous verdict that found Jane Dorotic guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 25 years to life. So there are a ton of transcripts on the trial And it went on for a few months, so there was a ton of stuff. Some of it, I was like, okay, that's like, okay, that happened, but I just don't feel like that's super important. We'd be here for hours if I read it all to you, but there are a few things that I think are important, so I'm going to read directly from the University of Michigan Law National Registry of Exonerations. That is a great website. That's where I get all of my cases from, a lot of my information from. So these, like, several paragraphs that I'm going to read to you include things that happened at trial that kind of developed into things that make Jane look a little bit less guilty afterwards. So just so we kind of get a feel of before and after. Okay, so it says there are several things that happen. There's three, four, five, five paragraphs. So, I'm just going to read them to you. Hopefully, it all makes sense. Um, If you have questions, then you can let me know later. So, a defense expert said that the black paint found on Robert's skull likely came from a tire iron or a pry bar. So, they're saying that he was probably, because his skull was fractured, they're probably saying that he was beat to death by a tire iron or pry bar. So, months later in 2020, the, the prosecution disclosed for the first time that prior to Jane's trial, a crime lab analyst had concluded the paint came from a crowbar or similar implement. The report had been concealed from Jane's defense, which is illegal. You have to turn over all evidence. So, although Merritt testified and told the jury that all of the blood stains were DNA tested and all were shown to be Robert's blood, In fact, only a small fraction had been tested, and many of the stains were not blood at all. The evidence showed that Merritt's testimony was false. So we have false testimony. Um, So obviously all those several blood stains they found weren't all blood. So this is all, their, their arguments all really falling apart. So let's continue on. So evidence showed that there were serious breaches of the chain of custody of Robert's blood that was preserved during the autopsy. The vial of his blood, which was not sealed, was unaccounted for during the time the Dorotic home was being searched. So they're saying that blood could have been planted. In October 2020, a district attorney investigator said he examined the blood vial and asserted that the vial was full from the bottom to the top lid. In March 2021 a defense expert examined the vial and discovered it was less than half full. A nick in the center of the top of the vial appeared to be the mark left by someone inserting a syringe into the vial. So, in 2020 they're saying the vial's full and then in 2021 they're saying it was half full. And there was someone had taken blood out. So, this this part kind of reminds me of making a murder if you've seen that. So the prosecution disclosed that in 2009, Olab, analyst, questioned Merritt's ability to conduct blood stain pattern analysis. The analyst said Merritt lacked the technical skills to conduct such analysis. In 2021, the prosecution sought out another expert who reviewed Merritt's reports and trial testimony, and included, concluded his work was based on improper meth- methods and was unreliable. Doctor Anita Zanin, a bloodstain pattern analysis expert, told the defense, quote, it is in my opinion that the bloodstain pattern analysis prepared by Charles Merritt in this case and the conclusions therein cannot be relied upon, given the many breaches in protocol, discrepancies, and lack of basic bloodstain knowledge that are apparent from this report and testimony. Quote. So their main guy who is saying Yep, this blood stain was clearly from this, this, or whatever. He lied. Essentially, is what they're saying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. um He wasn't credible at all. So, it's this is really crumbling. So, Doctor Frank Sheridan, the chief medical examiner of San Bernardino County, California, provided an affidavit for the defense, saying that while he could not rule out February twelfth, two thousand, as the time of death. The time of death was probably on Sunday, February 13, 2000. Dr. Sheridan also said the disrobing of the body at the scene, likely, if not almost certainly, caused the portion of his scalp seen on his upper chest area to become dislodged and relocated. Dr. Sheridan also reviewed the photos of the master bedroom and said the staining was insignificant. The wounds were such that if inflicted in the bedroom, the blood loss would have been all but impossible to clean up. So... Do with that what you will. That's just some of the things that happened at trial that kind of were, like, iffy afterwards. Yeah, it's, I, this, this case is hard. I'll, I'll state my opinion at the end, but it's just hard. Anyways, so at the sentencing, Judge Joan Weber said, quote, We will probably never know all the parties who had a role in aiding and abetting before and after the fact of the murder. The fact remains there is substantial circumstantial evidence tying the defendant to this crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Post quote. So after her mom's conviction, Claire became a licensed marriage and family therapist. And in 2011, she published a book titled No Secret So Close, a true story of a father's murder, a mother's betrayal, a family torn apart, and horses that turned it all around. That is a a long title. Like I am sorry, but that is a long title. And so this book discusses the circumstances around her mother's trial and her father's murder so i kind of want to read it Loki. let me know if any of you read it maybe i'm gonna order it on amazon after this so in a 2015 interview claire said in february of 2000 my father was brutally murdered a few days later my mother was charged with the crime as part of the defense strategy my mother's attorney accused me of murdering my own father in reflecting back, I was always fascinated by how, although horrible, I felt as though my experience gave me many gifts. As a practicing therapist, I not only found myself facilitating growth through adversity, but became curious about it myself. Quote. So since Jane Dorotic has been in prison, she has become an advocate for prisoners' rights. She also continues to claim she was innocent of her husband's murder. In 2015, she won a motion to have the evidence used in her trial re-examined for DNA, but according to the 2017 San Diego Union-Tribune article, the results were inconclusive. So in March of 2022, Judge Robert Kearney ordered that Jane stand trial once more because of uh, the false testimony and other things that had happened post-trial. So on Monday, May 16th, 2022, as really, really recently, which is nuts to me. So everyone waited for the trial to begin when the assistant district attorney who helped try this case back in 2001 dismissed the case because, quote, the evidence is now insufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So after Jane was released, she told the media, quote, I always knew, I always believed from the very beginning that at some point the truth would come out and I would be exonerated. I never for a moment thought it would take 22 years. And that is the case of Robert Dorotic and the exoneration of Jane Dorotic. So I this case is hard. I don't really know what to think. After all my research, At the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, man, like, that does not look good for her. Like, the motive looks really good. Like, all the evidence is just so overwhelming. Like, I don't see a stranger doing this. I don't know why her daughter would do it. Like, she really makes sense. But then as I go on and it's like, well, this person lied at trial. This person lied at trial. I just, oh, I can't come to a definite conclusion. I really think she might be a little guilty. I really do. But uh, I don't know. I'm so interested to see what you guys think. So I'm going to put some polls up on Instagram when this comes out so that I can get a sense and then you guys can get a sense of what everyone else thinks. Um, but thank you guys for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to tune in next week for another great episode. And don't forget to follow our Instagram and our TikTok it is at but did they do it pod for both and have a great rest of your week guys bye